From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro. This is the Imagine a Place podcast, where we explore the power of place and the role of design in our lives. I had Christian Giordano on the podcast in June of 2021. He's the co-owner and president of the New York-based architecture design firm Mancini Duffy, and he's the host of the Anti-Architect podcast. I brought Christian back on the show because after my first interview with him, I felt like he had this kind of secret sauce at his firm, and I wanted to figure out what it was. So was I able to crack this code and give you the recipe for his success? Well, that'll be up for you to decide. But if I had to break it down, I think it's these three things. Thankfulness, a vision, and a critical eye for your own profession. So happy you're here. Um, As I was imagining our conversation, Christian, I thought of the words secret sauce. And I was like, maybe that will be the theme today. Okay. All right, cool. Well, by the way, thank you for having me here and uh, and having the, the team here as well. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's been a fun trip. We, we've been to Cool Springs. Yeah, yeah. You had a chance to see us and see what we're about. And uh, thanks for joining me here in what we call the Blue House. Amazing space, amazing farm, the whole thing. It was an extraordinary day yesterday. Awesome, awesome. Well, I want to I wanna imagine out, as I, as I thought about secret sauce, right? I want to get into you, uh, your thoughts around team, around success. I think you have uh, some very progressive, uh, you think you have a very progressive mindset around architecture and design, around building uh, a company and a culture. Um, but I want to start just imagining 10 years out. And I was thinking, okay, um, it was on my way up here. I'm listening to how I built this. And I was like, okay, if Christian's on this show, <laughs> and, uh, and, and the host, the host has him on in 10 years and he says, okay, um, Christian, how did you do it? How did you achieve every goal that you'd set out for the, for the next 10 years? You know, how, how would you actually respond to that question? How would you look back and say, here's how I did it? Interesting. So, uh, it's, uh, first of all, being on that show would be amazing. <laughs> so I don't know. I'd have to think about, you know, 10 years in advance I would assume that my sort of overall goals over the next 10 years will probably evolve. Um, You know, while I have sort of a a very set idea of what I want to accomplish, I do like to think that as it evolves, it changes and matures, or maybe it doesn't mature, it goes backwards, and we have to kind of start over in certain areas. Um, But to be on that show, I, I will have had to achieve sort of beyond just being an architecture and design firm, which is, in fact, one of the goals, right? Um, I, I think, you know, to, to be a, and I don't want to be insulting about this, but just an architect or just a designer on that show, I don't think would be very interesting to, to that particular audience, right? Um, there are th- literally thousands of wonderful design firms and thousands and thousands of wonderful uh, architects and designers out there that I think, um, you know, are, are way more talented than me that for that reason alone could be on that show. But if I were to be there, you know, 10 years from now, I mean, when I think about our, our business plan, right, we, we have a strategic plan, 
It's um, it's not very robust in terms of it's not 30 pages long. Uh, you know, it's really only one page. It's a one-page plan. And in the next five years, my goal is to be double the size that we are now in terms of revenue coming in and, and people. Um, but then the plan from five to 10 years from then is to be 10 times the size. So a very, very steep incline uh, five years from now, starting to really, really take off. And so to achieve that, I will have had to, or not just me, the entire team will have had to figure out sort of this blend of design, architecture, technology, and the process and how to kind of string all of that together uh, and make it, um, it, it's not going to ever be a click of a button and boom, there's something designed, right? It's a, it's a very, for as tech advanced as we are in terms of our process, it's still a very human process. There is, um, there's a lot of listening that goes on and really active listening. So when we're, when we're designing a space for a particular client, you know, we're in our, we're in our lab and we've got our software up and the designers doing their thing. There's a, a, a computer programmer developer in the room as well. And the goal of many of the people in that room is really just to listen and to hear what the client is saying, to begin to interact with them. And then the technology is beginning to kind of pull all of that together and realize the client's vision immediately, ideally, um, but pretty quickly uh, within, a, within a design session. Yeah, I mean, I'm really interested in this when you said uh, be more than just an architect and designer. I, I wonder if you're hinting at something beyond Mancini Duffy into a more broader sense okay are you are you imagining that not just for you but uh, across the board is it not going to be enough to be an architecture and design firm 10 years from now are you going to have to be technology consultants technology firms i mean are you seeing that shift uh, for the whole industry yeah we're definitely seeing a shift right i think that sort of uh traditional design practice will always exist in some way. But if we really want to make a change and we really want to evolve like other industries do, there's going to be a defining moment somewhere in the next 10 years that shifts the way architects work. And yes, it'll probably be some sort of tech-related thing. Hopefully it's the, the things that we're creating that do that. Uh, but it may not be, obviously. Uh, so I think there's got to be... Um, there's something else out there for the process and for the and ultimately for the end result. I mean, you, you see it now, especially post pandemic, right? You see just if we look at office in general, right, the office is changing and I think it's changing probably for the good. It's very uncomfortable for those that design offices such as myself. Um, and probably a lot of the other the other architecture firms. And I think right now we're getting into the I can I can kind of sense it right where we're pretending it's going to all go back to be exactly how it was, mm -hmm. even though we all know that it's not, you know, oh, it's just going to be more open plan. Oh, it's just going to be an experience center. Oh, it's just going to be hybrid work. But I think we haven't even begun to figure out what that is. And so those types of events that that occur that make major shifts we're very slow in the design, architecture, interior world to react to it. 
we're never ahead of it, right? We're never we're never saying, okay, well, this is exactly how people should work, or this is how people should live. And I think when architects have done, you know, this is how people should live in the past, it's yielded pretty much disasters, right? Uh, mm. Some of the some of the high rise buildings in New York City where people, you know, the early Corbu plans of people living in high rises and coming down only to common space, it never really kind of worked out that way. That's that's really interesting because it's a little bit of a conundrum, right? You know, is the future ours to design or is the future ours to design for? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's like, do we shape the future or are we just responding to it as designers? Yeah. Are, we, are, you, are you saying we're somewhere in the middle there? I think right now we are, we're always reactionary, right? I think there's been periods where we tried to go ahead, but we went a little bit too far and not ever thinking about the, the human, um, mm. you know, the person actually living there, the person actually using space, right? When, when architects design and not all, but most, they think of form first and, and what is this going to look like? How is it going to fit in the site? They think of every single possible thing other than the human. And so I, I think what the pandemic has taught us is that the human in the end really kind of drives the experience there. And if we can shift that mindset a bit, I think we can be successful in steering the actual design side of things. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. <laughs> now you mentioned you mentioned your team earlier when you were reflecting on not reflecting projecting right the future um you you talked about your team hey you hope they all stay uh they're going to be a big part of this ride um let's talk about team building mm-hmm. is there something you're looking for in a team member is there a trait or is there characteristics and are you looking for a variety of things is there one common thread that you want to see in everybody um i I want to know how how do you how would you help our audience develop the right team okay so that for me has evolved over time um probably not the actual reasoning as to why i pick someone over another but my ability to actually understand it and my ability to act on it right Mm. so um over time, I, I, I listen to sort of, hey, this person's really good. You should interview them. And then all of these sources that kind of come at you for whatever reason. And the more I would interview people or the more I would meet people, I would be swayed, quite frankly, by, well, this is the school that they went to. This is the portfolio that they showed. Oh, this person really wants me to hire this person. I should do that. Maybe I'll get something else as a result of it, right? Mm. It's really been only the last 10 years or so where I have learned to just kind of trust my gut, but it doesn't mean I've always acted on my gut. And I will tell you that in the past probably year is really only where I've only acted on my gut. Right. And I think we touched on this yesterday when we were kind of tooling around and at at the OFS uh, farm, you know, in terms of the the owner of OFS. Right. And that how he uh, he goes a lot with his instinct and not necessarily with what might be the thing on paper to do. Right. And it's taken me a long time to train myself, even though I know that's the right thing to do. It's taken me a long time to really kind of 
trust my instincts um, and live with them ultimately in the end or why I can't quite figure out why this person is the right fit. But what I've learned to, to figure out about people as the right fit, it I, I can almost make that judgment call within the first two minutes of a conversation or, or even less. And it's just an, an inner, it's a feeling that I have, right? Oh, this person will gel well with the group. And what is the group? The group is, a, is you know, the, the, the firm or the leadership group. It's a very diverse group. I love when it's not predictable as to how someone's going to react to what I say or what my partner Bill might say or what our other partners mm. might say. That's an interesting comment. You like when it's unpredictable how someone will react to something you say. Like I've never heard that before. It's just an interesting Yeah, I love thing to being challenged because and and I, I even even in a you know in looking for someone, right? The fact that look, people have to be they have to fit in in a certain way, right? They 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 can't be pompous. They can't you know, think that they're the smartest in the room, that kind of thing. Um, they have to be smarter than me, and that's honestly not very difficult to do. <laughs> so I'm, I'm all for that. Um, but yeah, I want someone to say to me, hey, stop chasing that shiny object, dude. You know, this isn't part of the plan. Get, get back in line. I need people to freely be able to express themselves and say that or, or, hey, Christian, maybe you're not thinking of this part of that. You know, this comes up a lot, you know, especially when it comes to HR issues and cultural issues. You know, I'm, I'm a giver. I mean, I, I, my CFO calls me Santa Claus or her new <laughs> thing is now that she calls me Oprah, right? Yeah, you get a car and you get a car. Uh, I love making people, you know, excited about what they're doing, about their job, about, and being rewarded for it. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm to this day, I am so thankful that people want to work for us and that they want to give their time and their energy and their thought. Like I, it just, it blows me away that people actually want to work for me or for, for us. It's just, I don't know. I don't understand it. It's weird. That's cool. I mean, just <laughs> that attitude alone, you know, when we talk about secret sauce, like I, I wonder if that's part of it. I, I hope we're starting to kind of get, get those ingredients, figure out the <laughs> recipe there. Is there anything else when I say secret sauce, is there anything else that comes to mind? Uh, secret sauce. So I think, I think that thankfulness is something that I try to express. Um, I really, again, it's genuine, right? I really am thankful that people are, are putting their time and effort uh, into this. And, you know, it, if I can, um, if I can express that properly to someone, I think it, it creates a sense of loyalty and not because I'm trying to create a sense of loyalty, but because they know I genuinely am, am loyal and I want to see their career mature and I want them to make more money. I want to see the company make more money so that the individuals can make more money. And that's something that I express constantly. And how do we get out of this kind of transactional relationship, employee, <laughs> employer, you know, I, I feel like that transactional relationship really does sometimes hold hold back good ideas or yeah. hold back, you know, it makes people play it safe, you know, it it just changes it changes how you feel about work. And it's like, man, if you can transcend that, there's so much opportunity on the other side of that. Yeah, if there's vested interest on the other end and I think of uh, you know, some individuals at our company that 
are very, very into what we're doing, right? And no matter how busy they are, if something else comes up, they take ownership of it immediately. Mm. And that's something that's really, so when, when I'm looking for people to come to the firm, that's the best quality that, that I, can, I can try to find in someone. And it's hard to get out on an interview other than it's a hunch, right? Mm. You know, and you're asking someone, what did you do on this project? Or how did you lead this? Or how did you lead that? And, and they, there's a certain way that people answer questions that you think, okay, they really, they stepped up, right? They, they were, it was important to them to, not just for the project, not just for their career, but for the client. It was really important for them to do whatever it might have been. And that's a quality that's really difficult to, to find. And when you find it, those are the people ultimately that can help really scale the, the business. So, you know, I, I listen to you speak and, you know, especially when you talk about your team, that's when you, you break into the smile. Okay. And it's like, you're, you're, you're a pretty driven person. You can tell because you've got 10 year goals. I mean, you, you're thinking out and, you, and your goals are big. Um, but you're also a very happy person. Mm -hmm. Right. And so this combination of being driven, being happy, where does optimism play into, <laughs> into your career, into, I don't know, just, just the way you carry yourself, your life. Um, do you think about optimism? Like, is it something, is it something you're trying to understand or is it just something you have? I can tell you that it's something that I have, but I can tell you, I know the exact moment that I started thinking about it. Huh. And that was probably seven or eight years ago. We were working with a coach, uh, a, a coach called a scaling up coach and this guy was hardcore. I mean, he really, uh, he, he really held us, held our feet to the fire. I mean, he really whipped us into shape, which was good. And, and because I was still, I was new to the ownership side, we were growing, we were, we were expanding and, and we needed organization and some sort of system. Um, and we had no system. And so in the beginning of the, the quarterly meetings with this person, you had to go around the room and say, you know, the, the one thing that was affecting you. And it was always my job to go last. Mm. And for whatever reason, we must have been, I don't know what the scenario was, I don't know why, but for whatever reason, everyone around the table, and there was probably eight or nine of us at the time, everyone around the table had like some sort of doom and gloom thing that was bothering them, right? And mm. it was like, wow, okay, that sucks. And okay, ooh, that was bad. Ooh, that was bad. That was bad. And I remember feeling, and I don't remember what it was that was the issue that was bothering us, but I remember feeling the exact same as everyone around the table. But something happened in my mind where I said to myself, well, maybe everybody's looking at me here, and if I say the same thing, which was true man, I just, I, I'm going to, you know, we're, what a defeatist attitude here. This meeting's going to go nowhere. And we got, you know, I think with him, I think we had eight hours straight going with him. Oh. So when it got to me, I don't know what it is that I said, but I know I turned, I turned that negative somehow into being a positive and that we could be optimistic as we looked at whatever that issue was. And I remember seeing everybody's face around the table, like brighten up, you know, mm. And I thought, oh, look at that. Like, boom, the, the mood changed instantaneously. And so from that moment on, I was more conscious of, wait, I, if, I, if I talk about 
no matter what the issue is, that there's positive in the issue, that we can actually turn it into a positive. And it's very cliche, right? I mean, you know, turn sure. a negative into a positive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, le lemonade out of lemons. Exactly, yeah. But it's true. And I think people do look to me for that, um, which is great and scary, you know, because I, I, while I am extremely optimistic and I think very highly of our team and our company, um, me personally, I question myself a lot. Right. And if I'm being mm. honest, I, you know, as optimistic as I am on the outside, sometimes on the inside, um, I don't know. You know, I, I know that it'll probably work out, um, but I'm not exactly sure the path to get to that to that point. So it is important for and is that self-doubt or is that situational doubt? No, that's self-doubt for sure. Mm. For sure. Um, I, I've, I might have said this in the past, but in my parents I grew up, I was not a good student in, in high school, in, in grammar school and in middle school. Uh, terrible in middle school. I remember, and I think of my, my daughter, who's so good in, in middle school. You know, I'm like, oh, thank God. I remember coming home, and um, it was very different, obviously, now. You, you know how you can see, like, real-time, you know, grades of your kids, <laughs> yeah. like, instantaneously throughout the day, if you want. You didn't have to wait for that report card yeah. to come in the mail. Yeah, so my report cards would come, and they were terrible. I mean, I would get whatever the equivalent of F's were and D's were. I think it was, like, unsatisfactory or <laughs> sure. something like that. <laughs> um, terrible. I was a terrible learner. I mean, my parents had me in extra reading, you know, growing up. And But one thing my parents did was they kept me extremely confident in myself. And I don't know mm. how how they did it, but they kept me confident, right? They always said, no, you're, you're amazing. You're amazing. Like a good parent should, right? Right. And that stuck with me. And you don't, you don't need to worry about books and you don't need to worry about fitting in in school. You'll figure it out. You'll figure it out. And they kept that going. Something clicked along the way in high school where I figured out, oh, okay, I know how to do this stuff. Or maybe the math doesn't come as easy to me, or maybe I don't comprehend the reading as quickly as the other person. But if I read it two or three times, I do remember it and I can actually, you know, bring it back and, 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 and use the skills that I need to in life. So I think that there's always a little bit of self-doubt on my end because of that early sort of childhood experience of not being a great student and to having to work harder. But I really think my work ethic that my parents put in me and what, and what I figured out along the way <clears throat> made me um, kind of who I am because mm. I will outwork anybody nonstop. I mean, I, you might have seen a bit of it. I'm late to everything, right? <laughs> so the reason I'm late to dinner last night, the reason I'm late to breakfast this morning is because I'm working to the very last moment. I do think there's this correlation between optimism and being late. <laughs> because you always believe you can just fit one more thing in, right? Exactly. And it's that optimism, right? Exactly. I've convinced myself that it takes me <clears throat> 15 minutes to get ready in the morning when I know it takes 30. Yeah. But, <laughs> but every day I don't you learn. You can do it, right? <laughs> You're going to get it in 15 this time. Exactly. Exactly. That's funny. Yeah. I mean, it does, it does <laughs> sound like a heavy pace to keep up. You uh, you host a podcast, yep. the Anti Architect. 
Okay. I think I think it's kind of cool that here you host a podcast and you're 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 strategically calling out you know some of the problems with architecture and the process. Um, you get to talk to to colleagues, other architects, right? You 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 know there, it's really not about competitiveness or anything. It's about uh, advancing the profession. And we all talk to our peers, right? That happens quite frequently. But, you know, we, we both know when you hit record, the conversation is different, right? Mm -hmm. Things change. Are there some things that you've really learned from hosting this podcast? From Number one, from being a host, right? And then also just from having these recorded dialogues with other architects. Like, what are some of those big takeaways? Yeah, so, well, being a host is uh, is obviously something new to me. Um, I'm not as good as you, that's for sure, <laughs> that. but, uh, but no, it's, uh, I think that's a whole other learning curve, right? That was, you know, I had, I had never done it till we hit record on the first one. You know, I kind of went through like you in my head, kind of what I was going to say to people and maybe how they would react. And I had these sort of, you know, shower conversations with myself, <laughs> but, uh, but until you actually sit down to do it. You can't really experience it, right? And then the fact that that's going to be, there's no throwaways as far as I was concerned, we're going for it, right? And I probably picked to me, I'd love to have him on, um, the smartest guy I know, which is this guy, Jan, who owns Boca Ria Restaurants. And I look back on that episode, and oh, I could do so much more on the episode. So one day I'm going to have him back and and we'll redo it. Um, but But that's certainly a learning curve in terms of how to how to host a conversation uh it's different than having lunch with somebody right it's mm. different than um you know just kind of having a drink with somebody you've there's a there's a formality to it no matter how informal you're trying to be um and i think as the host as you know you've got to present sort of a structure right whether they know it or not and there's got to be some theme in your head that you're trying to, you know, get them to talk about and, and achieve. I think the most interesting thing about especially interviewing other architects and engineers is surprisingly how honest they are about the profession. And I think that's something that and that honestly was one of the goals of the of the podcast was to have an open and honest dialogue about, you know, what's messed up in our profession. As I've said, there are amazing things in our profession. The education system's amazing. There are so many wonderful parts and pieces to this profession, but there's also stuff that needs to desperately needs to be improved. Um, and I think the way you can improve it is through honest talk about it, honest dialogue. And I think what I realize is that we need to do more of this as a profession. It shouldn't just be me you know, talking about what's the, you know, what's under the hood of, a, of an architecture firm or why we don't work well with engineers. Why don't you work well with engineers? <laughs> I think because from, from, my, from my experience now on the podcast of having several uh, awesome engineers on, um, architects don't care about what's behind the walls or above the ceiling. <laughs> And that's kind of a waste of money as far as they're concerned. You know, they'd rather have that beautiful finish or that really nice exterior. And the fact that you can have all of this stuff that costs probably more than, than you know, the, the finished product and nobody sees it. Who cares about that crap? <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. But also we don't talk enough, right? There's not, there's a competition for whatever reason, the way that, that 
that our profession is set up is immediately to compete with one another, even if you're on the same team. And there are mm. other methods of delivering uh, projects that I think um, some areas in the country do well, um, like uh, integrated project delivery, IDP. Um, that's not something that's very done very often in the New York or Northeast region, maybe even, you know, the sort of the Northeast half of the United States. It's really more of a West Coast thing. And that's where everybody gets on the same team. They're under the, they're, there's, a, there's a contract that's formed, a sort of a separate company that's formed, and everyone works towards a, a goal a financial goal, a, a, whatever, a metrics goal, whatever those goals are. And if those goals are achieved, everybody is rewarded with, um, with some sort of payout in the end and some sort of percentage. The client wins because everything's fitting within that budget. Everything's figured out ahead of time. Right. And everybody, it's in everybody's best interest to have an open dialogue of, hey, that stuff that you have behind the ceiling that I don't really care about, I care about it now because we're all on the same team and I really want to see it work. And not only do I want to see it look nice in terms of where it goes, but I also want to see it, you know, financially perform or what for whatever other metric might have been defined along the way. And so, but the profession right now is set up to, you know, the, the architect, you know, maybe holds the engineer's contract or maybe doesn't. You know, it doesn't hold the civil engineer, it doesn't hold the structural engineer, or maybe they do. And so you can be on the same team, you're working on the same project, but you're not necessarily working in the same method. Or And so we've got to align all of that some way and get on the same page. And I think, at least with the architects and engineers that I've spoken to on the podcast, they're very interested in open dialogue and having a conversation, picking up the phone and saying, hey, I think I messed this up, or hey, I think you messed this up, and not it being, oh, I'm not going to talk to you, or absolutely not, now now we have a legality problem, right? So yeah, so there's that, that open dialogue that I'm starting to see, and I see those themes emerging as, as the podcast progresses. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't know if that was the purpose of the podcast, but it's it's great that that's showing its head that it's that's coming out you know this this idea i mean if you think about a building all the stuff in it i don't know that there's a more complex project you know in any profession than dealing with it maybe maybe putting on the olympics okay like whoever's doing that <laughs> that's right? right that's a big deal that's pretty, okay it's pretty hard yeah let's talk about interiors a little bit is the relationship between interiors and architecture ever a relationship of tension or do you feel like that's a that's in a pretty good place right now and compare it now to 10 years ago yeah so it's always intention uh no matter what i do it's always intention i don't i don't understand <laughs> um you know even i even thought about this the other day i was touring someone through the office and i i said Oh, our office is loose is broken up into studios, and this is the interior side, and that's the architecture side. It's really not true, even in my even in our own office. And I'm and I'm standing there in front of the one of the main architecture project managers. Um, I'm like, why did I say that? It doesn't even make sense because that's kind of how it is in my mind, uh -huh. but it isn't really. So wh why is that? I I, I so. There is always this tension between interiors and, and architecture. And in a firm like ours, where we do both, um, it's probably less so than in, than in other firms. But I, you know, we try to structure our teams to have both 
architects and interior designers and kind of cross-pollinate all of those. I am very much a believer that if you're in this profession and you've done one or two interiors projects, you can certainly do an, an architecture project. You may not be able to, um, uh, you know, detail the the complex curtain wall systems or understand, you know, why the drainage has to come into a building and then out of the building. Um, and honestly, you even if as an interior designer, you can pick that up um, as you get experience. You know, even the educated architect doesn't really know that until they've seen it, you know, a few times actually get built and, and understand why and how it all works. So we do try to staff our projects sort of not looking at, well, this is what this person only does interiors and this person only does architecture. We do really try to cross pollinate and that's the best way of doing it. I also think because of our system, the, the technology side of things, because we're very team focused, everybody's on the same team and everybody's working in the same piece of software that we've invented and everybody's working with the client in the room. And there's no, well, that's the interior person's problem or that's the architect's problem. They'll figure that out later. You're figuring it out as you go. And so that okay. begins to solve a lot of those issues. But I'm sure at other, at other firms, it's definitely something that, uh, you know, they don't like each other on either side of the aisle. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, seems, it seems to be, you know, firm to firm, there might be a different stance on this subject. I was just curious on your take. Uh, but uh, in terms of history. 10 years, you know, has it evolved in 10 years? I think absolutely. Uh, my previous firm, there was a big divide between mm. architecture interiors and and we sat in separate locations and we never spoke to one another. I think the, the 3D modeling in general, because you're working, even if you're not working in our software and if you're working in just the, the typical architecture software, which is Revit, you're working in a cloud-based version of it. You're all working together on the same model. So just the fact that, you know, if I'm working on the exterior and the interior designers working on the interior, I have to take parts of that model with me to work on it locally. And then I have to bring it back. There's a dialogue that's happening, whether we want it to happen or not, just by the fact that I've got to actually now talk to this person and say, by the way, this is what I'm working on inside the model that you're actually holding. <laughs> Yeah, that that makes sense. That makes <laughs> sense. I mean, you're you're here. I, I've I've got you on camera, which is rare. I right? forgot which that, is by the super, way. <laughs> yeah, super awesome to be sitting with you on camera. Um, is there anything you wanted to put out in the world? Um, is there anything that you were hoping? Is there a question you were hoping? Gosh, I hope you asked me this. <sighs> well, yes, about the podcast, which is which is great. Um, you know, I I think putting out in the world is. You know, I'd love to invite people's feedback on the podcast, right? And mm. and what are some if if other architects and designers are are watching and listening to this, you know, what are the things that they think I should ask, you know, other architects and other designers or even clients about what do architects do well, what do we not do so well? Um you know, what are some, even some shared experience of things that have, have gone wonderful and why, and what are some things that have been an absolute train wreck and why, and how can we solve for those kind of things? So, you know, I'm looking for as much feedback as, as people are willing to give me, um, and enough ammunition to kind of, to, to enhance and kind of take the podcast to the next level. Cause I think we're onto something, right. And there's, there's themes that are emerging about what architects do well and don't do well. Right. And, or what annoys you, I think my, my first question is what annoys you about you know other architects or what do architects do well or not do well that are annoying um 
So more questions like that, I'd love to kind of hear people's uh, thoughts on that because as I said, I want to really dive a deeper and get into people's emotions and get some honesty out of that and have people um, you know, be, be more vulnerable as they come on to, to really talk about what it is and how we can improve our, our profession. Oh, I, I love the work you're doing there with the anti-architect. Um, I love the, the core purpose behind it. And I think we're getting to the secret sauce. You know, I'm excited actually to, to listen back on this conversation and think about, okay, what are those ingredients? Okay, cool. Yeah, you got to tell me what, what the secret sauce is. If you enjoyed today's episode, we would really appreciate a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. To discover more design stories, visit us at ofs.com slash imagine a place. From OFS, I'm Doug Shapiro, and you've been listening to Imagine a Place.